All right, welcome. We are uh, still walking through the book of Acts and uh, uh, themes in Acts. So, uh, so today we will continue. I'll try to wrap up uh, what I've been doing the last couple of weeks on uh, demon possession and de- demoniacs. And so we'll kind of wrap that up and uh, talk about persecution and martyrdom within the book of Acts and beyond the book of Acts. So that's going to be my goal for today and next week as well. Okay, so let's begin with the prayer, shall we? Almighty, merciful God, you are the uh, Lord and creator of the universe. You supply the needs of all your creatures. We ask that you would continually provide us with all of our needs of body and soul. We thank you for your word in which you have revealed your will and the plan of salvation and your promises to us. Help us to be edified this day, uh, both by our study in the book of Acts, but also in uh, the divine service today. Feed us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, a few words of a uh, recap or continuation or conclusion of uh, demons and, and things of that sort. The, uh, someone just asked me before class started um, if uh, something about uh, within the Lutheran church, uh, exorcism as a rite or ritual within the Lutheran church, and does that exist? Has it ever been done? What, what do we think about it? Is it just the Catholics who have exorcism? And... Um, so the, there is not much in terms of if you're looking for official hymn books in Lutheran denominations that have a certain, you know, you look in our hymn book and there's a service in there for baptism or marriage or funerals. But you're not going to, I don't, I won't say never, but you're not going to find that very often in Lutheran service books, nor would you find that in a Catholic, average Catholic service uh, missile. Um, and unlike the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church does not ordinarily train and designate ministers to be exorcists. Catholics do that, or at least supposed to. Uh, I've read that canon law requires that every diocese in the Catholic Church around the world is supposed to have a designated and trained priest who can do exorcisms. And there's a whole process. You can't just go around and put an ad in, in you know, in, on the internet, um, every, an exorcism must be approved by the bishop. There, there's steps. Okay, it must be approved by the bishop. There must be uh, medical consultations and all those sorts of things. So the Catholic Church uh, does continue to do exorcisms. Keep in mind that some parts of the world or some bishops are going to be more uh, open-minded to that than others, okay? Just like in any church body, there are going to be bishops that are more traditional in their beliefs and practices, and in this sense, I mean in a good way, and there are going to be those who are quite liberal and maybe don't even believe in the devil, so they're not going to be doing, sending priests to do it. So it, it will vary a lot. Um, there's actually, uh, um, I think he just passed away. There's, so every diocese is supposed, like I said, is supposed to have a designated exorcist in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, what about the Diocese of Rome, okay, where the Vatican is, where the Pope is the Bishop of Rome? Does that diocese have an exorcist? Yes, it does. Um, or at least it has. The, the guy who was doing it, his name was Gabriel Amorth, uh, just died recently. He was 100 years old or something. But the reason I know his name <laughs> is because he wrote a bunch of books. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, from a Roman Catholic perspective, he's wrote, he wrote a, a, a number of books that are popularly written um, that anybody could buy and, uh, and read and get. You know, he tells anecdotes or stories of his experiences. It's really quite interesting. Um, so uh, starting with Martin Luther, there, yes, he reports, um, or it is reported that he participated at least a couple of times himself in exorcism, okay? So he, uh, you know, there's, sometimes it's hard to know with some of these stories, um, you know, are they being exaggerated or anything like that? It's not always 100% certain, but it's reliably historic that he himself participated in one or two, particularly there's one that was supposed to have happened like in the sacristy of the church. Um, 
Now, the difference would uh, a difference would be that the Lutherans have never, uh, starting with Luther, never felt like it. You had to use, um, you know, like one official ceremony, and that that was the only effective way to do it. And that's kind of the Catholic thing. You have to use their specific ceremony uh, or other or or rite ritual. Uh, Lutherans will say, and and Luther said, no, I mean, you simply command the devil in the name of Jesus Christ, and you would pray the Lord's Prayer, or you would read the scriptures, or, and uh, and then it might have to be something that's repeated a number of times, you know, I mean, so there's a whole thought world, uh, even within Lutheran church, um, about, uh, about exorcisms, although you're, like I said, you're not going to hear it sort of uh, very commonplace. It, it is becoming a, a little more so, though. Um, within the last, I would even say just the last five years, definitely within the last 10 years, our own church body, the LCMS, has started to publish a few books, uh, not with rituals that I could go get and, and just step-by-step -step use, but books about it, about uh, how we would see this theologically, how we would see this biblically and pastorally. Um, a lot of times exorcism... When you do hear about it, even in the Catholic faith, but but within Lutheranism and other, I mean, there are other Protestants who do this too, right? I mean, you, Pentecostals are often kind of very keen on what they call deliverance ministry. Maybe maybe in a way that we wouldn't want to go quite exactly how they do it either. But uh, uh, the the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, I've seen at least two or three books uh, from our own publishing house. Um, by LCMS pastors talking about their own experiences uh, with exorcisms. And it tends to be something on a mission field, okay? It tends to be something out in um, a, a, an area where there's not much Christianity or where there's a lot of idolatry and, uh, and witchcraft or, or magic practices, things like that. And uh, there, there is a prominent Lutheran theologian, he's from Australia, named John Kleinig. And I know I've mentioned his name in here before a couple times. John Kleinig, uh, LCMS pastors who know him really like him a lot. I mean, he's really funny, dynamic, excellent teacher. And um, uh, usually he does Bible teaching. He's an Old Testament scholar. But I have heard him do a seminar on what he calls spiritual warfare, where he talks about these sorts of things. And he's from Australia, but he has had missionary experience in Papua New Guinea. And so some of the things I'm going to mention now are from him, not my own personal experiences, and nothing I can cite as a biblical teaching you must believe, but these are some of his interpretations of, uh, of, of what uh, is going on. And he's, uh, so I just said to you that frequently, uh, when you do hear about demon, demonic possession, you're most likely going to hear it about it in the mission field. Now, a skeptic would say that's because those people are uneducated and they can't tell the difference between a disease and, 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 uh, spiritual things. And there, it, there may be some element where there is confusion about an organic disease. Uh, that's always a possibility. And, uh, but I do think it's a bit uh, arrogant to say that other cultures are, are dumber than we are, <laughs> you know, just because they don't have, you know, I mean, I just don't think that, I think that's a bit, what's the word, ethnocentric or whatever, we got it figured out. Uh, maybe we could learn from them, is my point. And uh, so, so I wouldn't write anything off just because it happens to Papua New Guinea and not New York City, um, but uh, but he has so he says that where there's idolatry, the actual worshiping of false gods, there tends to be uh, some more demonic activity. Why might that be so? First uh, Corinthians ten, First Corinthians ten verse twenty. If you want to look it up, you may of course. First Corinthians ten verses twenty and twenty one. Um, uh, so um, Paul says. What pagans sacrifice, pagans, okay, pagans meaning people that worship idols or false gods, okay, pagans, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, 
Okay, uh, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He goes on. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I don't think this is just him using figures of speech. That the pagans are just really bad, uh, and so I'm going to use this kind of figure of speech. I, I, I don't think so. I think he's saying um, that that's what's going on in pagan pagan worship. Um, be of course, you know, as, as Christians, we know there are no gods but God, right? There is no God but the, uh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Trinity. That is God. There is no other. So if you bow down and worship uh, Baal, uh, you're worshiping no one. There is no Baal <laughs> to hear your prayer. There's no Baal to whom you should appease with your sacrifices. The, 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 you know, Baal does not exist. But Paul would go, goes a little further and says, well, no, there is no Baal, but, but demons are impersonating these gods. These are the names humans have given to demons or whatever. So anyway, this is the, this is a, I, I think an intriguing point. What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not just to the air and space, but actually it's demonic. Now, um, so, so that's John Kleinig's argument that because there's idol worship, there's demon worship, which is going to result in more demon activity. Okay, you're inviting them in, and it is you're you're opening up doors that you know are not always going to be necessarily open. So this should be a concern for us as um, Western societies become less and less uh, Christian or influenced by Christianity, and there is rebirth of actual paganism. Okay, uh, when people leave Christianity in, say, United States, or let's use Western Europe, when people leave Christianity, many, many of them become agnostics or atheists, pure secularists. They don't believe in the spiritual world at all. Um, but not everybody. You know, there are there is a resurgence of. Uh, I mean, it's called neo paganism, right? Neo meaning new. Look it up. I mean, neo paganism is an attempt to revive or come up with some new version and it's you know i mean it's it's americanized so it's all about consumers and i mean you know like that but it it, it may involve actual praying uh and worship in some form of uh what paul would call evil spirits or unclean spirits or demons or devils so um okay wrap this around i was saying that where there uh, even lutheran pastors and missionaries and, and other protestants not just catholics are reporting that they have witnessed and participated in actual exorcisms usually it's on a on a mission field where there is still a lot of pagan worship and or witchcraft sorcery um occultic practices but as these things become more common in the west and they are we might as well expect there to be uh, more manifestations amongst us. So um, th that's kind of how John Kleinig uh, describes that. Let me give you a couple lines. I, I have quotes because when I listened to him teach this, I you know took my own notes, and so I I've got a couple of lines from him. Um, he says, um, uh, "Just as vultures circle dead animals." Demons are drawn to things that are unclean. Okay, and I'll talk more about that biblical term, unclean. Okay, so they're they're drawn to uncleanness. Okay, it doesn't. I, I you know I don't mean like you didn't dust your coffee table today. Okay, um, uh, John Kleinig. He also calls this. He like I said, he's very funny. He's got a great way with words. He calls this the rat principle. Uh, rats are attracted to garbage. They feed off garbage, and one of the best ways to get rid of your rats is to get rid of the garbage. Um, he says to get rid of demonic powers is to eliminate the uncleanness and, and garbage. Okay? Um, see what else? I guess that's going to be my Kleinig quotes. Um, so how do, how do we deal? How does the Christian church respond to uncleanness or uh, impurities or 
spiritual uh, impurities, things like that. Okay, well, when the Bible uses the word unclean, which it does a lot in the Old Testament, if you read the book of Leviticus and the Jewish laws, you hear about unclean being clean, unclean, ceremonially unclean, you hear all that. Uh, but it appears in the New Testament in the concept of demons, right? Cleanness and uncleanness in, uh, in the Jewish religion is not just about tidying up your house. Um, it, sin, for instance, sin makes one unclean, okay? Uh, we shouldn't read the word unclean in the Bible and put an equal sign between unclean and sin, okay? Because there are other ways to become unclean. Think of the word polluted, okay? That, that something can be polluted. Uh, it, it, it might be because you've sinned or it might be because you're surrounded by sin that you're kind of, you're, you're in the midst of filth. Whether you've contributed to it directly, you're in the midst of filth. And to be in the presence of God, that, that will, will, will need to be cleaned up. And that is what Christ does. Christ cleans us uh, from all our, uh, our, all our uncleanness, and, and that is by removing the garbage. So Kleinig makes the application that, uh, you know, Christians should be, all people should be very wary about indulging in unclean things, okay, sinful things, um, or or being associated with them, or being you know um, uh, involved in tolerating the presence of sinful things, evil things, uh, you know, uh, pornography, um, uh, violence, um, uh, s- abuse. Uh, to, to be in that climate and even to tolerate it or approve it or participate in it can bring uncleanness, uh, which can attract uh, even thing, even worse things. Okay, so Jesus comes. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ uh, uh, makes us holy. And um, on the cross, the blood of Christ is shed. And we also participate in the blood of Christ when we go to communion. That is a way, an important way, that we have communion with our Lord Jesus, and can it has a cleansing, a forgiving and a cleansing action on us. And to be aware of that, I think, is very, very helpful uh, pastorally, spiritually, uh, for ourselves. So when someone, so you can have a feeling of uncleanness, even when you've done nothing particularly wrong. Sometimes people feel polluted or like they've been degraded, and they have been degraded by the evil of other people against them, right? Someone sins against you in a certain way, you might feel ashamed. What'd you do wrong? Okay, well, I didn't do anything wrong myself, but I just, there's this sense that I'm, I'm spoiled, I'm, I'm ruined by this activity. Well, um, okay, in a sense, maybe, but we need to, we need to pronounce deliverance from that. Okay, and we can. We the church has the means to rescue people, okay, from uncleanness, including including unclean spirits. So someone asked me if I ever participated in an exorcism, and no, uh, I haven't, uh, knowingly <laughs> um, or unknowingly. I never have, but I, but I can tell. Like I said, historically, Martin Luther did. Um, in, in his own way, and, uh, and, and Lutheran theologians throughout history have mentioned it and have accepted that it is a reality, even if we don't, you know, make a lot of, bring a lot of attention to it. But maybe we should. A little more attention, that is. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause first so that you can ask, think of any questions. But if I step over there, it's because my battery's going dead, so I'm going to get um, my cord. So questions while I do that. Yeah, uh, who has the mic? I see. Okay, first back there and then up here also. Yeah, I just wanted to, I don't emphasize that, that here in Corinthians, it talks about participating yeah. um, in with demons. Um, doesn't uh, Paul elsewhere say there's nothing wrong with eating the the food sacrificed idols unless it causes your brother to fall away? Yes, <clears throat> thank you. Yes, he does. Um, so you know, P- Paul uh, Paul is acknowledging that uh, when so some practices 
when they lose any of that kind of association, uh, may still be okay. All right. So people in the Corinthian church were concerned because in Corinth, idolatry uh, was was still a common practice. It was the majority practice. And people, when you sacrifice an animal, the meat of that sacrifice would be sold in the market. So when you went to the market, you most likely were buying meat that had been sacrificed to, to idols. And um, uh, so people's consciences were bothered by that. So Paul does give, I think, <laughs> of course, uh, does give, uh, I think, a complex answer. Uh, that yes, on the one hand, these things are not real. There are no gods, false gods. The meat is meat, right? So on the one hand, if the association with that god is not there, then you're free. But if the people you're with, you know, if the, or even yourself, still have an association of this uh, as being with that that false god, that it would be uh, better not to do it. And then even here, he said he goes even further. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to bring up um, is it, what I get out of the, this reading is that if you were doing both, mm. um, you know, worshiping idols and worshiping uh, Christ, um, I mean, famously, Emperor Constantine um, accepted Christianity, you know, the in hoc signo winces. Yeah, right, uh, right, right. Um, but my readings tell me that he didn't stop worshiping the Roman gods. He just added Christ to the list. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, that, you know, speaking of Constantine, that actually is a very uh, much discussed topic in, in church history. How much was Constantine really converted? Yes, early on, uh, there does seem to be a, 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 a syncretism that this stuff is going on. Um, so the conversion of Constantine, I, I think there's good evidence to say uh, that his, his conversion was sincere, um, but it wasn't like overnight, kind of, I'm now doing everything right, but eventually he, he probably mostly gets there. I mean, it's hard to know if anybody's sincere, right? But he professed it. He professed it. Well, that's a, that's a little different, but I hear what you're saying. Yes, if you are eating... Uh, food that's been sacrificed to demons, and you, if you're doing it in a way that is participating in the, it's not about the meat, right? It, it, it's, it's, it, you know, are you participating in it as a spiritual activity? Then you're tainted by it. There's demons there. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that. Up. I mean, that is a very, um, as a rich explanation to that. Good. Oh yeah, another, uh, Julie. I think you may have said something about this last week, but what is the connection to baptism? I mean, with exorcism. Okay, so um, baptism, uh, so uh, I'm going to do a little church history for a moment. Um, the early Christians did not have a secular viewpoint, right? So they saw that the world was inhabited by invisible things. And uh, their assumption was, if you came from a pagan background in the early church, except for Jews, right? I mean, um, after a certain point, when very few Jews were converting, it was mostly Gentiles. These, who are these Gentiles? They're almost always going to be pagans. Well, I mean, they all are. <laughs> they all, and uh, they're all pagans, unless they came from Judaism. So, um, therefore, the assumption of the early Christians was that they are either possessed or they're under the control of or they have demons hovering over them or they're associated with them in some way so part of the conversion um, was to ritualize that and so when they did baptisms they included an exorcism in every baptism okay even if people weren't you know showing the more uh, manifest signs of what we might read about in the gospels even but the assumption was you have demons associated with you because you've been worshiping pagan gods. So we are going to do an exorcism. Um, and in, in, in early liturgies, it could sometimes be quite elaborate. I mean, the whole, the whole baptism service was elaborate. You would, uh, you would not only denounce the devil yourself, which we still do, but the, the officiant, the priest, would, would say something like, depart you unclean spirit, make way for the Holy Spirit. Okay. And maybe do that like three times. Um, uh, you know, the, the person was supposed to, and 
like in Jerusalem liturgy, they were supposed to spit to the devil as a way to show contempt for the devil. That this is part... Now, even Luther, when he revised the liturgy, Martin Luther in the 16th century, when he revised the liturgy, he didn't throw out the tradition, but he revised it of anything that countered the gospel and, uh, and put it in German, of course. But when he first... His first version of uh, the baptism rite in included those, what you might call a minor exorcism, you know, and exactly what I just quoted, depart you unclean spirit and make way for the Holy Spirit. So Luther's liturgy of baptism continued doing that. It was later uh, omitted, but not, I don't think, for any agenda reason. But, uh, but yeah, even Lutheran uh, history has understood. And, and now, I, I don't know, I haven't, actually don't think I've seen a well, I have seen baptisms here, but I don't remember um, whether that is done here or not. But I have seen some, okay, I have seen some LCMS churches, and I did it, uh, included that minor exorcism line. And you usually, if you're going to baptize someone, you might need to prep them for that <laughs> or, or their family so that they, you know, don't, you know, <laughs> misconstrue what you're doing. So I do think it's actually very appropriate because we, we are, uh, God is claiming the individual as his child, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the person, and uh, and so pronouncing the you know speaking words to put words to what God is doing is appropriate. It's fitting. Um, I you know if you don't say those words, depart you unclean spirit, and just do the baptism in the name of the Trinity, I mean you're not you don't lose anything, <laughs> but uh, but there's, I think it's always okay. And salutary to add words to, to 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 verbally express what God is doing at that moment. So I think an exorcism could still be this. Um, I don't know. Did I get? Uh, was there anything else I needed to say about that, or is that Barry? Who else has a question? One back there, and then yeah, real quick. You kind of answered my question already. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask. I was going to ask about the, the verse, if you could help me out, that says that if you cast out a demon and not replace it, there could be, what is it, seven more that are worse than the first, Yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I just wanted to ask you to talk about that, which you kind of did with the baptism and the Holy Spirit. So, Yeah, right. I mean, yes. So these are the words of Jesus, okay? And so... Uh, casting out a, de a demon without preaching the gospel, without there being a baptism, without the Holy Spirit coming in, um, may not actually long-term help much. <laughs> uh, so, uh, exorcism should be associated with preaching uh, and the sacraments. Uh, it should be, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's a great idea based on that, to have exorcisms, um, which may quite well be effective, but then leave the person without much gospel to fill up uh, that spiritual cavity, if you will. Yeah, there, you know, um, right. You know, people that think about this a lot might say that there, you know, maybe there are levels of this. Okay, we tend to think because we watch the Hollywood movies that someone is either inhabited by the devil and then they froth at the mouth and have laser eyes, and or uh, or they're not. And uh, but there could there appears to be um, maybe levels or degrees of control. Um, maybe not full bodily possession, but. Uh, strong influence, oppression, demonic oppression, which could be also dealt with and healed by the word of God, right? So, I mean, you know, the scripture says, uh, sanctify everything by the word of God in prayer. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to sanctify uh, ourselves. Or God is sanctifying us through, through his word, right? And, and prayer. Um, when I was growing up, and I, they're still around, but the Ouija boards. Mm. And I was always told that not to even participate in those games because it opens you up for demonic things. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so she asked about Ouija boards, and 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 probably includes similar sorts of uh, magic practices. So necromancy. Okay, necromancy is is you know, strictly forbidden in the Bible. You know, explicitly forbidden. Necromancy. Necromancy is the attempt to communicate with the dead. And um, and that's what a Ouija board in particular is trying to do. The whether the participants are how serious they are, they may be seeing this as mostly a game or a spoof, but uh, it doesn't mean it isn't dangerous. Um, in fact, it might be more dangerous if you're doing this just without thinking. But don't do it in any respect, because the attempt to communicate with the dead, first of all, you are not communicating with the dead. Okay, We don't communicate with the spirits who've gone, that's why praying to the deceased is not good idea. So we can't communicate, nor with perhaps exceptions, but nor is it the common thing for the spirits of the dead, human beings who are with the Lord, to communicate directly with human beings, uh, li living on the earth, I mean. So that whole area should be avoided. Uh, anything that attempts to communicate with the dead, because you're, and if you do experience something, if there is some phenomena, you're doing the Ouija board, you're doing tarot cards, whatever it is, and there's some phenomena that is hard to explain scientifically or naturally, and you suspect there might be supernatural, like, you know, maybe, maybe the, um, the Ouija board tells you something that is accurate. Okay? Um, it could just be happenstance. Um, but I believe in the possibility of demonic control. So remember, the devil is a liar. So uh, nobody, almost nobody is going to sit on the Ouija board and said, you know, you know, oh, king of the underworld, you know, and address and come to me and talk. But you might try to talk with Elvis or whoever, right? Uh, um, so the devil will deceive you. And, uh, and perhaps give you some reason to think that you've done that. Uh, and so you've been deceived. So I do, I do agree that those kinds of, uh, those are pagan practices. Those ways of participating in uh, demonic activities, uh, yes, can open us up to uh, uh, demonic activities of some kind. So those sorts of things should absolutely be avoided by Christians. Don't think that uh, because I am a Christian, uh, none of this can affect me. I don't think you should think that. Okay. Um, other results of the fall affect us, right? We get sick, we die. So the, the, uh, the, uh, rulership of the devil in the world, right? The, the devil is uh, referred to as the prince of this world, even the god of this world. So if the devil is in some sense um, an authority in this world, uh, you know, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, of course, has been emptied. But if in some sense he's clinging to authority in this world, and uh, then we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised if he will exert some control over us and inviting that even unwittingly is is very unwise and quite uh, not not to mention sinful um, but uh, don't don't do that yeah good good question I mean any kind of occultic activity especially attempting to speak to the dead is um, it's always been there people have always done this uh, it's uh, a practice we read about in the Bible um, soothsayers, people that, you know, that's, that's, it's nothing, I don't know how old Ouija boards are, but that kind of thing is, I mean, there's lots of different ways that this is manifested. Can you connect that to praying to the saints? Well, I wondered if anybody would. <laughs> I wondered if anybody would say that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't. I mean, we shouldn't do that. Okay, uh, we can't. At, at the minimum, okay. At the minimum, it it does nothing. Okay, I mean, uh, I can assure you. I, I believe sincerely that the Virgin Mary does not want us to pray to her, but to her Son. 
Okay, so I don't think the the the, the when you mean the saints, you, you know, you mean the 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 church triumphant, the church in heaven. Um, uh, they don't want it. Okay, nor do angels. Okay, they don't want to be invoked. Um, but I don't I don't see any reason to think that they can hear you anyway. They certainly can't do, you know, St. Jude, St. Jude is, uh, is St. Joseph is supposed to be, I mean, the whole patron saint thing is, uh, I hope superstition isn't too strong a word, but um, is it St. Joseph that's supposed to help you find things? Huh? Well, that helps you sell your house, but I don't know. So there's all kinds of, but if it's Jude, let's say it's Jude, uh, he can't be everywhere, right? I mean, he's not God. Even if he could hear you, he can't hear me and you. I mean, so at the minimum, it's futile and it does nothing. And when people put their faith in it, it can be destructive to faith. At a minimum, it's that. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, I think it is very appropriate to balance out. I think it is very appropriate. In fact, I think it is beneficial to remember those who've died and are with the Lord. Okay? Not in the sense of expecting them to intervene in our lives. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my, my sainted grandmother is not my guardian angel. Okay? She loved me when she was on this earth. She still loves me. <laughs> um, and she very well might be praying for me in heaven, but she can't hear my prayers. And if she could hear my prayers, I don't think she could do anything about it other than maybe intercede to God. But that is as a whole. We can't know that the saints, uh, when we pray to them, can hear us at a minimum. Okay. So um, is it demonic? I think, yeah, I think you're, uh, you can go down that path, right? Because people will claim miracles uh, for praying to the saints or uh, manipulating relics, stuff like that. And... Uh, uh, but I don't go the whole uh, typical Protestant route, uh, nor does Lutheranism go the typical Protestant route of saying, well, anything, any talk at all about the saints in heaven is Catholic and can't be, and we should, shouldn't be done. I don't think we should pray to them, but it is very, very beneficial to remember them. Uh, and I mean, the Book of Concord, uh, uh, the Augsburg Confession says that uh, there are several reasons why we should remember the, the, those who've gone on. Uh, one is because they can, um, their model, right? Think of David. Okay, David, God used David. God used Paul. We can think of that and remind ourselves of the good things God did. Okay, and that's, that's strengthening to your faith. We can thank God for them, right? Even my grandmother. I thank God for my grandmother. I can still thank God for my grandmother now, and that's not idolatry. All right? Uh, I'm grateful for her influence in my life, and I'm thankful to God for that. Um, so if you hear Lutherans occasionally talking about saint days or something, that is not necessarily inappropriate. It could be quite, quite beneficial, I think. Um, and so does the Lutheran, so do the Lutheran confession. Uh, so I, 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 I kind of did a circle there, but, uh, I, I think, yes, it is possible to, uh, it, it's superstition and can lead to bad end. Any other questions at this point? Okay. I may just move away now. <clears throat> from from demons. Oh yeah. Oh, let me let me just conclude this section with a couple of promises from the Word of God. Okay, a couple of uh, encouraging promises from the Word of God. And I've got uh, uh, I've got three passages, not in Acts, incidentally, but I've got three passages that I will share with you. Um, the first one is Romans sixteen twenty. Uh, Romans sixteen twenty. This is a passage that I, I, I love all these passages personally, but this one always, I think is quite interesting. So Romans 16, 20, uh, what does Paul say? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, that doesn't sound peaceful. <laughs> you know, it's like the God of peace will destroy your enemies. I mean, it's just a great way to say it, right? It's just a, it's an intriguing thought. The God of, because peace comes to us by the defeat of the enemy. You have to fight for peace. 
in the spiritual realm, pacifism is not an option. There are plenty of Christian pacifists in the earthly sphere, and we can debate that. But in the spiritual realm, there is no debate. In the spiritual realm, there's no, there's no armistice. Okay? There is no treaty sign. There's no peace accord between God and the devil or between us and our enemy, the accuser. No, it is defeat and it's total defeat. So it's okay to fight for peace. Right? Uh, the God of peace. And when else in the Bible do we hear any mention of God crushing Satan under a man's foot? Right. Uh, Genesis, the very first promise of a savior. In Genesis, right after the fall, he tells Eve <clears throat> that her seed uh, and, the, and the, the seed of the serpent uh, will be at enmity, and while the serpent will bruise his heel, he will crush his head. Uh, that's a, generally understood to be a, a foretelling of the coming Messiah. And his work, I think, is what Paul's talking about, that he's crushing Satan under uh, under our foot. We participate in the work of Christ. We are united with Christ. What Christ has, we have. Victory, life, salvation. We will be co-regents uh, with Christ as our head, of course. But we are, we are um, co-regents uh, with Christ um, over the world. First uh, John 3, 8. Another uh, promise in regard to the devil First God, uh, First John three eight, and I may have read this one at the very beginning of this section of our class. First John three eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In bold, this next passage, uh, sentence. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a very, very powerful way to say the gospel, I think. He, by dying for our sins, he destroys the work of the devil. Because what is the work of the devil? To attack your faith and your good conscience. Okay, uh, that is the work of the devil that is destroyed by the uh, Christ on the cross. It is destroyed by, of course, his resurrection because the one who is um, who instills us with the fear of death has been overcome. Every act of Christ um, is part of his redemptive act, and we participate in that. Okay, so now, but the first part of that, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Okay, so that is a good reason to have an exorcism in your baptism. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, not whoever falls into weakness and sins ever, but which is what which we all do. But uh, but if that becomes your way, if your way is sin, um, then uh, then then you are, uh, as John says, you are of the devil. Now always balance this. Always balance this with Paul's words that we fight not against flesh and blood. The enemy is never your fellow human being. They're victims too. Okay? They're victims too. Even the most... Okay, never ever say of another human being that they are evil incarnate. I just read that in a, in a, book, in a book yesterday. Uh, a, 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 a Christian writer, a bioethicist writing about a bad person said, you know, I used to think he's evil incarnate. It's like, well, yeah, don't... I mean, <laughs> no other human being, no matter how wayward they are, no matter how um, under the sway of the devil they are, is evil. They are fallen, they are corrupted, but their nature is still to be a human. The same nature born by Jesus, the Son of God. So, um, so as Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, meaning human beings are not our enemy. They're victims too. But against powers and principalities and um, of, of darkness. Okay, so then finally for this section, Matthew 12, 28. Matthew 12, verse 28. Here's Jesus. 
but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so the word he is he is associating his work of casting out demons as evidence that the kingdom of God is dawned. In Jesus' preaching and teaching, he speaks a lot about the kingdom of God. He teaches us to pray, "Got your kingdom come." Okay, so the kingdom of God—that concept, not a not a, a civil state—is never the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God. Uh, the reign, the rulership of God in Christ over the creation with us as his co-regents is, uh, is here. Um, in its <laughs> incipient form. Okay. So sometimes theologians will talk about inauguration. Well, I mean, think of like presidential inauguration, but an inauguration of the kingdom of God has occurred. Okay. It's not only a future event, but it hasn't been fully consummated. It hasn't been fully uh, manifested. We still struggle. right? So the kingdom of God has been won and achieved, but we are still kind of trying to uh, evict the occupied enemy. Okay. It'll take a while to evict the occupier from our territory, which is ours. Okay, so, but Jesus, uh, the reason I point this out is because Jesus states that casting out demons is evidence that the kingdom of God is upon us. Also healing. I think healing is another way for us to point to the gospels and say the kingdom of God, because in the kingdom of God, there's no cancer. Okay, raising of the dead, Jairus' daughter, raising of the dead. This is evidence that the kingdom of God is breaking in to this darkened age. Okay. All right. Now, uh, not lots of time left, but uh, I, I do want to begin speaking about the topic of persecution. Um, I actually probably won't even read from the Book of Acts today. But but the but the topic of persecution is an Acts topic, and we will read verses. Okay, eventually. But uh, persecution, let me say a few uh, introductory remarks in the time we have left. <clears throat> have you ever heard of the, the, the uh, phrase, the marks of the church? If you studied theology, you've seen this phrase. Uh, what are the marks of the church? A mark, the marks of the church, that theological phrase refers to those uh, indicators, those proofs that the true church is there. How do you know if the church is there? You look for the marks. The marks, the, the signs, the manifests. Okay. So what are the marks or markers that the true church is present? Um, so the, uh, the typical Lutheran answer today is that there's two marks of the church. That the gospel being preached in its truth and purity, and the sacraments are administered according to Christ's institution. Okay. So rightly... Uh, administering the sacraments and uh, correctly preaching the gospel is the mark of the church. And we really don't need to add to that at all, right? That is the presence of the church of God. <clears throat> so that's kind of a typical Lutheran answer. Uh, a typical Calvinist answer, just as a comparison, a typical Cal—I mean, uh, Calvinist confessions of faith identify three. Okay? The word of God, the sacraments, and church discipline. Just very interesting. But, I mean, Lutherans believe in church discipline too. I would lump that under the other ones, the uh, word of God and, and administering the sacraments. According to Christ's institution, church discipline falls in there. But they pull it out and make, okay, make, make of that whatever you like. But, uh, but in one of Martin Luther's treatises, we, you know, we shouldn't be dogmatic about things like how many marks of the church are there. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's a human category. But uh, so, so Luther says something different in uh, his treatise on the church and councils. So in 1539, so this is actually rather mature Luther. Luther in 1539 wrote something called on the churches and councils. Uh, great treatise, you should all read it. But in it, he identifies seven markers of the true church. And I will read them to you. The seven markers... This is how you know. When you see those things, you know the true church is there. If you don't see them, then the church isn't there. 
What are his seven things? Uh, well, you know, we don't go very far. The Word of God taught in truth and purity. Okay? Of course. Uh, holy baptism, number two. Holy communion, number three. Uh, office of the keys, uh, which by which he means confession and absolution. Of course, not in the way that the that the Pope teaches and practices it, but the declaration and proclamation um, of forgiveness of sins to sinners. Uh, we're not just here to tell you about the forgiveness of sins. You know, we're here to declare that your sins are forgiven. And in that declaration, it is affected. Okay. So, number four, the office of the keys. Number five, for Luther, a called and ordained ministry. Some, you know, pastors, right? You have to have them. Uh, number six, uh, prayer. And public praise. Number seven, uh, he calls the sacred cross. And he doesn't just mean, you know, uh, religious art, which is also quite salutary. But what he means, uh, as he explains it even, is he's talking about suffering and carrying the cross as followers of Christ. He calls it a mark of the church. Okay. Doesn't mean all of us are going to be burned at the stake, but if there is, if, if the church exists in such a way that it does not experience uh, hostility from the world, the Spirit of God may not be there. I mean, that is going to happen where the Spirit of God is. All right? So, I mean, uh, uh, you, you, you know the phrase, um, uh, friendship with, with the world is enmity with God, right? You can't be friendship, have friendship with the world and, and, and uh, be friends with God at the same time. All right, I only got a couple minutes, but I'm going to squeeze in something and then I'll recap it next time. Um, the, I'm going to talk about bad ways and good ways to think about persecution. <laughs> Start with the bad ways. Maybe that's all I'll get through. Um, not every problem you have is the cross, not every problem you have as a Christian is persecution. My second point, not every time people oppose you is it persecution. It, it, it's awful, and it might be even bad, but it isn't necessarily persecution. Furthermore, not even every time people oppose you for your Christian faith is necessarily persecution. I'll explain that, although I don't have any time to. Um, uh, yeah, okay, let me just repeat that. Um, not every time that you are opposed, even on the basis of your Christian faith, is that necessarily Christian persecution? And I'll have to unwrap that next time. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll just make one more point. Another bad way to think about persecution is this. Uh, you cannot go out and intentionally and purposefully cause your own persecution. Okay, that is that is not pure of heart. Okay, uh, you know the disciples were murdered, but they didn't show up <laughs> at Pontius Pilate's home and say, "Burn me at the stake." They didn't volunteer. They went willingly. Um, I mean, they went without fighting. Okay, uh, the early church said that. Uh, Generally, generally, the bishops of the early church, when there was Roman persecution, generally the bishops of the early church said it is wrong to flee persecution. They didn't always practice that, but generally they said it's wrong to flee persecution. But it is also wrong. The bishops of the early church condemned seeking it, going out and volunteering for it. All right. So uh, that maybe just scratched the surface. So we'll talk more about that when we resume next Sunday. Thank you for your time. <laughs>